Okay, if you could open your Bibles. Genesis 22. I'm going to read most of this chapter today. We're going to skip the last little bit. Although it's important for what happens later on. But we'll reflect back when we get there. It's a foreshadowing of a few things. Let's hear God's Word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy... We'll go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went uh, of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, so went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him up on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply, uh, surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham Abraham lived at Beersheba. 
Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, You alone have the words of life. Just as the disciples said that after Jesus had issued a difficult teaching, we recognize that there is nowhere else for us to go. Even though at times Your Word is hard for us to understand and to believe. And so we ask that you would illumine us by that same Spirit, that you would subdue our stubborn spirits by the Holy Spirit, that we might behold and believe all that you want us to know this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who died that we might live and believe. Amen. Tomorrow is what? It's what? <laughs> you learn things all the time from Joseph. <laughs> I never knew it was Arizona Statehood Day. Um, but, it's, <laughs> but it's also Valentine's Day. <laughs> Joseph, it's also Valentine's Day. For the rest of you, it's also Arizona Statehood Day. Okay? It's kind of interesting that a day in which we were meant to celebrate a man who lost his life for the gospel, St. Valentine, has sort of turned into this thing in which we celebrate not the gospel, but romantic love. Isn't it interesting how we do this all the time? Just like we did with Christmas, we do sort of with this. Uh, someone sent me an email yesterday that had the lyrics to When a Man Loves a Woman. So listen for a moment, I'm not going to sing. Yeah. When a man loves a woman, spend his every last dime trying to hold on to what he needs. He'll give up all his comforts and sleep in the rain. If she said, that's the way, it ought to be. In this R&B classic, there's this idea that if a man loves a woman, he will do anything for her. He will reorient his life. He will endure any sacrifice for her. In a sense, this song is saying, there is nothing too great to be asked of the man if he loves a woman. Tim Keller talks about something similar. In, one, in a number of his messages, actually, he talks about one woman that was in his congregation who was not yet a Christian uh, at the time in which she started this dialogue with him. And she was really struggling with faith. Really, she was struggling with grace. She understood something about grace. She was reluctant to come to faith because she understood some of the dynamics of grace and said, if it is all of grace, there is nothing God cannot ask of me. Because to him, I owe everything. If I contribute something to my salvation, some small measure of my of obedience, then I can always say to God, nuts enough. You cannot ask that of me. It is too much. And besides, you know, you owe me a little bit for my sliver of contribution. This text is about when God asks too much from our perspective. 
Most of us would read this, and I imagine that most of us kind of had this initial thought of, you've got to be crazy, God. If you asked me to do something like that, there's no way in the world I would ever do anything like that. It reveals something about our hearts. That's really what this passage is about, revealing what is going on inside of our hearts. The big idea this morning is that Jesus died to rescue us from our misplaced delight. Again, Jesus died to rescue us from our misplaced delight. Not from delight, but from delighting in the wrong things. First part of this is that God tests us to discover the source of our delight. Indeed, he does test us to discover the source of our delight. This, This passage begins years later. We don't know how many years, but it's probably ten or more at least. Because as we see later on in the passage, this boy is able to carry enough wood for a burnt offering on his back up a mountain. Okay, so he's not six. Okay, you know, I couldn't strap this big bundle of wood on Jaden's back and expect her to carry it up a mountain. Forget across this parking lot. Okay, so he's probably mid to late teens. We don't exactly know. But what happens when God shows up, usually when God shows up, it's it's, it's kind of good news for Abraham. This time, not really such great news. What's going on is that God is about to test Abraham. And this word has that idea of to prove the quality of someone or something. Okay? The, The old English will say tempt. Okay, if any of you have a King James Bible, it'll say that. And there is an older understanding or use of that term which has the idea of test, not tempt. And so, you know, sometimes we don't always catch these changes in how words are used. Test is a really good translation of it. To show what this thing really is. Not to prove it something else, but to prove what it really is. You know, like if, ladies, if you had a little stone on your finger, is it diamond? Kubrick zirconia. It's one or the other. Okay? It's not going to change. But you test it by taking it to glass. What does it do? If it, if it creates a line, if it cuts the glass, you have a diamond. If it doesn't cut the glass, sorry. You got the other thing that doesn't cost very much. Okay? And depends on the context. I guess you got it in whether you're happy or sad. But still, it, it reveals what it already is. And so this test is designed to reveal who Abraham already is. Okay? Abraham is like Job, meaning that he did not know what was really going on. He didn't, didn't, God didn't say, Abraham, I'm going to test you. He didn't know what all this was about. He's in the dark. We have the privilege through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses knew what was going on, and so he lets us know what's going on, that this is a test. And it would seem at some points that Abraham's faith in Job's faith particularly, might be weak. And we would be deceived. John Newton, in one of his letters to a struggling brother of his, uh, spiritual brother, another pastor, had said that uh, faith is never stronger than when it is most tried. See, when we are experiencing trial and tribulation and we, our faith seems so small, it seems so, so fragile, Newton says in reality, that's when it's strongest. 
we would be foolish to call the power lifter weak because we see his knees struggling under the weight because he's got 450 pounds in the air. He's not weak. He's strong. And so that's the way it is when we encounter a testing, a trial. Our, our, our knees might be trembling under the weight of what we bear, but we bear something great. Our faith actually is strong in those moments when we think it's really small. And that is what God is about to reveal in the life of Abraham. And so, this is the way my mind works. He's testing Abraham. I was involved in a little Facebook thing and uh, just someone had mentioned that Abraham was a great man and someone had responded, oh, he's a sinner just like us. And I said, yeah, that's true, but what about Genesis 12 and God's promise that he is going to give Abraham a great name? And so compared to me, not compared to God, but compared to me, Abraham is a great man. He is far greater than I will ever be. Frail and sinful though he may be. If God tests Abraham, shall he not also test me? Shall he not also test you? Shall he not also test us? If Abraham was not exempt from the testing, the proving of what was really inside of him, are we exempt from the proving of what is really inside of us? Something like what's going on in our church right now. That's a test, I think, of what we're really made of. What's really, what really matters to us? Because that's really what's going on in this passage as well. Is what matters to us a building or our faith? What matters to us is what's revealed in the midst of the test. We, we kind of go, you know, right at the end when Abraham does all that he is asked to do, God says, I now know that you fear me. Now we understand the goal, the purpose of this test. He was going to see whether, you know, how much fear of God was really in Abraham. Okay. Some people use this passage to teach something called open theism, which means that God does not know our, our future choices because our future choices are free. That's not what this passage is teaching. Okay, God is speaking to us as human beings. Okay, it's not like God didn't know. But God reveals for us, and we see how this is used in James chapter 2. Okay, that his justification is vindicated in his obedience. It is not the cause of his justification, but it is vindicated through his obedience. What does it mean to fear God? I think we can do this, we can look at this in two different ways. One is a good way and one is a not so good way. Let's look at the not so good way first. And that is what many authors have called slavish fear, the fear of a slave. It is the fear of judgment and condemnation. It is the fear my son feels when he's afraid of the spookies in his closet. That something bad is going to happen to us. Okay, It is the fear of a criminal as he stands before the judge and is, get, is ready to hear the verdict and the judgment, the sentence. Okay, That is a slavish fear. That is the fear for those who do not believe because that is their condition. They are before a judge and they are guilty. But that is not to be our fear. 
because He has relieved us of our condemnation in Christ Jesus, we instead have the second fear, which is called, I don't like this word, but still, phileo fear. fear. Phileo fear. Has that idea of the fear of a son for his father. It has this combination of awe, reverence. Okay, those are... Those are there. I mean, little boys hold their dads in awe, usually, right? They want to be like dad. I don't know why anyone would want to be like me. But Eli is claiming he does right now. Um, <laughs> so, it's, But it's not just awe and reverence, but it's also love, delight, trust. It's like a stew. With all of these things, you take some of it, you, know, you take the meat out of a stew. Do you have stew? No. You can have the meat in there, but if you pull the vegetables out, do you have stew? No. Not really. So it takes all of these things to really have the fear of God. A godly fear of God. Or a gospel fear of God. Okay? It's, it's awe, it's reverence, it's trust, it's delight. Okay? Here's the issue. Abraham loved Isaac. There's no doubt about it. It says it three times in this passage. The son whom you love. God knows how Abraham feels about Isaac. We also know that Abraham loved the promise. He'd left everything for this promise. But the question comes up, so to speak, did he love God more than he loved his son? Did he love God more than he loved the promise? What was foremost in his heart? The promise or the promise giver? The son or the son giver? That's where Abraham is in the midst of this. Our idols, okay, what they really represent is three things. Or one of three things. Misplaced love. They can also represent misplaced delight or misplaced fear. Okay. When you have the fear of man, whether it's your boss, your neighbor, your parent, you live in fear of that person and what they will do. You think that they have life and death control over your life. What happens is that is an idol. You have a misplaced fear. Jesus told his disciples, do not fear those who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Okay? There's a misplaced fear. It's an idol. And, it, and idols control our lives. And so both or fear, delight, and love all can control us. And then when we have our fear our delight or our love in the wrong thing, then the wrong thing is controlling us and shaping our lives. We're obeying the wrong God. And so now God is about to to discover to Abraham whom he really obeys. Because for Abraham, it's probably become a little cloudy. This test reveals what Abraham really loves, what he really delights in, what he really trusted in. And so this bounces back on us in a lot of ways. What really controls our choices? Are we controlled by fear of something? Are we controlled by the desire for security above all else? 
Are we, are we driven by a desire for comfort? Are we driven, are our choices shaped by greed? There's any number of things. Romantic love being one of them on that day we're about to celebrate tomorrow. Some people give anything for romantic love. They'll take their marriage for romantic love. They'll do anything. It's misplaced love. Okay? And so, this question then sort of comes up. This is, the answer to this is going to be different for everybody. But what can God not take from you? Is there some place, something in your life that you've said, God, you cannot take that from me. You do that and I'm gone. I'm out of this relationship. Okay, that's an idol. If there's anything that you have said, God, you must give me this, guess what? That's an idol. If there's something you say, God, you can't ask me this of me, that you can't, oh, you can't require this obedience from me, guess what? You've got an idol. Because now you're setting a limit on how far you will obey God. That's dangerous, brothers and sisters. And when we discover these things, when we reveal, these idols are revealed, our misplaced delight and fear and love is revealed, something's got to give. Okay? We cannot continue to live in here. And it is through hardship that God works to prove the quality of our faith, to reveal the impurities that are still there. Remember, it's not, for us who are Christians, it's not all or nothing. The rest of our lives, he's going to be revealing these things. And it is then that we repent. So, God tests us to discover the source of our delight, but we see also through this text that authentic obedience flows from godly fear. We haven't even talked about what God really asked of Abraham and how he responded. It's interesting because this echoes Genesis 12 in some ways because he was to leave for a place that God would show him, just like in Genesis 12. Okay? But this time, instead of something really good, he's supposed to do something that is terrifying to Abraham. He is to offer his son as a sacrifice. Abraham was probably not expecting that one. None of us would have. That came out of the blue. Okay. What kind of offering? A burnt offering. This word is, uh, we, we see the, uh, how this takes place in the life of Israel in Leviticus chapter 1. And there in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, a burnt offering is a substitute for purposes of atonement. It can also be used for uh, a sacrifice that is about total surrender or total submission to someone else. The whole offering was to be consumed by the flames. This implies that Abraham had made Isaac into an idol, or at least was struggling with that. And God is about to reveal it. How far will Abraham go? What will he do? Remember, Abraham doesn't have the rest of the Bible. He does not know that God has prohibited child sacrifice at this point. Up to this point, his sacrifices have been animals, but he has no revelation to this point that this is wrong. And so, that you know, 
what does he do? Does he argue with God? Does he fight with God? It's amazing to me that he obeyed God. He woke up early that morning. Remember, this is the desert. It's almost like Tucson. There's no streetlights. Okay. He got up, packed his stuff, threw it on a donkey, took his son and two servants to go with them, and left. First thing in the morning. We, teach our, we try to teach our kids right away, all the way, happy heart. Maybe when they're 100, they'll get it. <laughs> okay. Abraham was doing it right away. The first opportunity he had to obey, he took it. He did not wait and think about it. All the way. I don't know what the happy heart part. <laughs> okay, probably not with a happy heart. But think about it for a moment. It's not something he just walked out, that's done. Took the knife, right there. Three days. For three days, a man in his hundreds walked across the desert with the son he loved, knowing what he must do. When he gets there to the mountain, he must, 100 plus years old, climb the mountain. He must then, after that, build an altar. He must bind his son. Think about that for a moment. There were three to four days of choices for Abraham that led to obedience. At any point in that, in that chain of events, he could have turned around and gone back home. Think about that. That's the way obedience is. It's numerous small steps in the same direction. And that's also what disobedience is. Numerous small steps in the wrong direction. At any point, you could turn around from those. Just like you can turn around from obedience. Abraham kept making those steps. There's so many blanks in this. I mean, we don't know what was going on inside Abraham. But I know it couldn't have been easy. And so for three days, he pressed forward. What is it that kept moving him forward? It is precisely what we found in the previous point. The fear of God kept Abraham moving forward. He trusted God even though he did not understand what God, or why God rather, had asked this of him, had required this of him. It was the fear of God and fear of God alone. Why do I call this sort of, uh, you know, a stew of things? Precisely because of what we see in places like John 14. What does it say there? If you love me, you will obey me. Okay? And so there's, there has to be an element of love for God that is present for Abraham to obey him in this act. 
We find from Hebrews 11, talking about the specific obedience of Abraham's, it was by faith Abraham obeyed. And so not only is love present in Abraham, love for God present in Abraham in this obedience, but we see that faith for God is also present in this obedience. Okay, so that's why we, we can't just limit it to one of these things. We, we say the fear of God encompasses all of these things. He held God in respect and awe as well. Okay, but disobedience reveals, among other things, a lack of love for God. Our disobedience reveals, among other things, a lack of trust in God. It reveals, among all the other things, a lack of respect for God. This is what we try to teach our children. That when they don't obey us, that's really what's going on in their heart. And that's what goes on in my heart when I disobey. And so this gospel fear, as Jeremiah Burroughs calls it, Okay, uh, Bunyan calls it godly fear. I like gospel fear better. But it encompasses uh, both of these things in order to produce a God-centered obedience. John Newton, again, in another letter to the same friend, says this, Obedience is the best test of sincerity. Feelings are various, transient, and often deceitful. But a broken, humble spirit and an upright walk Evidence the finger of God. Other things may be and are often counterfeited. The genuine, authentic character of Abraham's faith is revealed in this obedience to God. He's living out his justification, not producing it. Okay? So authentic obedience is not about slavish fear. It's not about the fear of being punished if I disobey. Okay, When my kids do something only because they're afraid they're, they might get a spanking, that's not authentic, genuine obedience. I'll take it. <laughs> but I prefer the happy heart obedience, trust me. <laughs> not the whining, complaining obedience. And God's the same way. He's not pleased when we obey begrudgingly, whiningly, or out of fear. But he delights when we obey out of love, out of trust, out of respect, out of awe. Which of those things drives your obedience? I can't answer that question, but maybe someone close to you can. You know, I see you obey, you kind of act like this. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> Slavish fear. Okay, you got it right there. But God-honoring, God-pleasing obedience flows out of a heart that is filled with gospel fear. And so the question then comes, how do we get this gospel fear? <laughs> delight in Christ, our substitute for misplaced delight. One of the amazing things that is spoken of in this passage is Isaac, of course, asking his dad. He's not dumb. <laughs> we got the wood. We got the fire. We got the knife. 
but I'm not seeing a sacrifice. <laughs> and Abram's, Abraham's response was, the Lord will provide. God himself is going to provide. Now, that is probably because Abraham is thinking in his mind, he's believing the promise and saying, I don't know how God's going to pull this off. But I know he will not break his promise to me, and his promise to me is that my line will carry through this son, which is why in Hebrews it says that God he believed that God is able to raise the dead. And, it, and God stopped short. Actually, he stopped Abraham short of killing Isaac and provided a substitute for the substitute. Okay? Did you catch that? He, catch, he provides a substitute for a substitute. He provided, which is why Abraham, you know, it says here in the text after that, this is why this place is called the Lord will provide. And they were looking for, is even looking forward here. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. They're looking forward to something. They don't know what. And that what would be 1,500 years later, when God would not spare his own son, but would offer him up for us all. The substitute, the final substitute, the only substitute towards which all the previous substitutes pointed. Because it is not the blood of bulls and cows and and lambs and goats that can take away sin. It is only the, the, the Son of God who can take away sin. Therefore, because God provides forgiveness, He is to be feared. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, endured the cross, as it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before Him. He did not go with a begrudging heart, but He went with joy, not because He found pleasure in the act, but in the result of the act. The redemption of His people. The purchase of His flock. He went with joy. Unlike Isaac, he went knowing what was coming. And so we see here that that gospel fear is really all of grace. It is a gift of God in the gospel. We see it in places like Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. When our heart is divided, we will not fear his name. We will fear other things. But the psalmist recognizes that the only one who can, he cannot keep his heart undivided. It is God who must grant him an undivided heart. And so the the fear of God is something that he is expecting to be given by God in Psalm 86. Jeremiah 32, we see this as a promise of the new covenant. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. A promise of the new covenant. 
Not that He would take away our fear of Him, but that He would put the fear of Him in us. Removing the fear of punishment, but putting within us awe, love, trust, these things that we can't conjure up on our own, He puts them there. It's a promise of His gospel that they go there. And so we find that the fear of God is really, it's not something you conjure up inside yourself. It is something that the Spirit of God works up in you, works in you, creates in you. But how is it that He works this and creates this in you? I think it's largely as we contemplate our substitute for our sin, which is precisely why in Hebrews it says, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and its shame. He is the one who begins our faith. He is the one who finishes our faith. Look to Him. And as we behold, as we contemplate Christ, our substitute for our sin, love is meant to well up in us because He loved us first and gave Himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only that, but trust is to well up in us because He proves Himself as a promise keeper. We can trust Him. What more proof do you want that you can trust somebody than they lay down their life for you? Really? Trust, as we contemplate it, trust is meant to build up in our hearts. Not only that, but awe should rise up within us as we contemplate the fact that the eternal Son of God laid down His life for us? Really, who'd want us? Who'd want people as damaged and sinful as us? Not just want them, but treasure. Who of you, in finding a spouse, would say, let me go find the most messed up person I know (laughs) and make that one my beloved? And that's what he does. There is not an ounce of worthiness in us And yet, He loves us. That should inspire awe in us. Respect. Also revealed in the fact that His justice is poured out upon His Son. Our Father in heaven is just and righteous. He doesn't just kind of make it not so. (laughs) It's not magic. But he's also just, just as he is righteous. Okay, so as we meditate upon our substitute, these are the things that that should be going on in our hearts if they're made alive by God's Spirit so that we grow in this gospel fear. There we behold that God is for us, that he is actually merciful. And one little quote from Bunyan, Godly fear flows out of a sense of hope of mercy from God by Jesus Christ. See, Bunyan got it. Godly fear flows out of the atonement. It is not separated from it. It's there. And then there's John Murray, the great systematic theologian from Westminster Seminary in its early days, who talks about how we we have this fear, the church 
is filled with the Holy Spirit, which according to Isaiah 6, uh, sorry, Isaiah 11, is the spirit of the fear of God. That spirit is at work in us so that as the church, we grow in the fear of God. And growing in the fear of God, we then grow in obedience. Yeah, I'm about out of time. One thing that concerns me, brothers and sisters, is I'm, I'm reading a lot of books, or a lot of books are coming across my, my desk these days, that deal with the very real problem of casual Christianity, of a nominal Christianity, of a, a, a faith that is somehow captured by the American dream. Okay? A lot of these guys, suddenly this is kind of really the hot topic right now, and there's a bunch of books popping up. Uh, and it's not a new problem. Charles Stanley wrote a book in the 80s on it, and I remember reading. Okay, so for 20-something years we've been talking about this. Thus far, none of them have talked about the real answer to the problem. The gospel of grace that produces godly fear or gospel fear. That is the answer to our casual Christianity. It is not try harder. It is not feel guilty. It is not all that stuff. The answer is, as it has always been, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which he not only justifies us, but also sanctifies us. <sighs> so the fear of God is one of the keys to healthy spiritual life. That gospel fear only grows as we ponder the work of Christ on the cross, and we are filled with awe, wonder, love, and faith. And the proof of the, proof of the matter is growth and obedience. The cross of Christ, which not only justifies us, but also sanctifies us. As we keep our eyes on Him, we discover the depths of our faith, even as God tests us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. I know I am grateful that You provided a substitute to bear our sins. Just as you delivered Isaac, provide a substitute for him. But it is because you forgive sin that you are to be feared. And so I ask that now you would grant us more of these gospel graces that we might fear you as a son fears his father. Not a fear of punishment, but of all love and trust. That we would then walk in obedience to you. So continue to change us, continue to restore us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus who sanctifies the saints. Amen.